2: A listener note this podcast contains strong language and disturbing content.
3: Left is Cromwell Street. Left is the House 25. plain house from the front just featureless just a box quite sandy coloured rectangle ugly it's one of the darkest houses in the street i'll speak to the church people it is right next door after all bizarre that a killer lived next door to a church next door must have heard something you know contact the people at 23 the adjoining house bedrooms were just beside each other must have heard all sorts of noise screaming shouting impossible not to
2: It began with a phone call, like many stories. Hamish from the news desk called over to me. Howard, can you talk to the person on line one? It was March 1994. I was a journalist for the Sunday Mirror in London. It was one of the biggest British tabloids at the time, selling three million copies a week, back when papers were more important. As a general news reporter, I covered a range of stories, including crime but I spent a lot of time writing about celebrities, the royal family, and show business. Recently, I'd reported on Michael Wacko Jacko, and I'd been to America to investigate Julia Roberts. It might sound like fun, and I'd had plenty of adventures, but I wasn't proud of anything I wrote. After ten years in newspapers, I was bored. So I pick up the phone. I can't say who the caller was. I promised never to reveal their identity. But they had inside information on a huge story breaking in Gloucester. It concerned a middle-aged couple, an odd job man and his wife, a stay-at-home mother to ten children. Their names? Fred and Rose West. The caller went on. The West's teenage daughter, Heather, was missing. The police had been looking for her, but they'd found much, much more. I realised I'd been pressing the phone so hard against my ear, it hurt. I hung up, told the news desk what I'd learned and bashed out that first big front page story. Then i packed my bag with my tape recorder and blank tapes And hurried to my car. I was on the way to Gloucester. From something else, this is unheard: the Fred and Rose West tapes. get keys. I'm Howard Soons. I broke major stories in the West case as a journalist. Okay, follow me. I saw at once that the West case had the makings of a book. So while I reported for my paper, I also worked on my book, Fred and Rose, hoping it would lead to a new career as an author. I wish I am going to find a dead body, but sadly, not yet. Working on the story, I recorded my interviews on a micro cassette machine the tapes have been locked in storage for a quarter of a century. Okay, here we go. Research material, Fred and Rose. House of Horror. So originally I called the case the House of Horrors, which I'm embarrassed by to this day. Terrible newspaper cliché. It was the first thing that came to mind on the day. House of Horror tapes, brackets, interviews. And there they are and hopefully we can uh, just see if a couple of them work, because they've been in storage all these years. Uh. Fred and Rose West are virtually unique in British criminal history, a married couple who killed together and went undetected for decades. Between the late 60s and the 1980s, Fred and Rose West murdered at least 12 young women and girls. Nine were buried under the cellar and garden at their home at 25 Cromwell Street. It was a crime that shocked the public and attracted more media attention than any British murder case since the Moores murders three decades earlier. I was 29 in 1994. The focus of attention at the time was the West's. The victims were little more than a list of names. But now, 25 years on, that list still stays with me. Twelve young women and girls lost their lives. Many were not even reported as missing. How could so many people disappear unnoticed for so long? What were their stories? In this series, I'm returning to my tapes and meeting new witnesses to find answers at last. It's a story of a family and their secrets and what many people call evil. Fred and Rose are also often described as monsters, but that doesn't help us understand them. How did they become killers and were there warning signs that were missed? It's also a story about the media and our society. The trial nearly collapsed because journalists offered witnesses money for their stories. A quarter of a century later, when true crime is more popular than ever, what does the story show about our fascination with murder? What does it reveal about us all? Part One, Inside Cromwell Street. We'll be hearing some of my tapes later, but I've also found some new witnesses who give fresh insights into the case. This is Jill Britt.
4: I was 16, 17, and I was living in a small bedsit, which was my first independent living, if you like. In
2: 1978, Jill had just left home. She was renting a so-called bedsit, a combined bed and sitting room in a shared house, in the city of Gloucester, about a hundred miles west of London. Like other teenagers, she wanted her independence, but most landlords were strict.
4: It wasn't so good. It wasn't everything I expected to be. You couldn't have friends stay, you couldn't have late nights. Well, as a teenager, obviously that's all what you want to do. So a friend of a friend sort of said, Oh, There might be some places, bed-sit rooms coming down. There's a lot more freedom and a lot more, you know, just getting on with what
2: you wanted to do. Sure enough, a vacancy did come up. The room's previous occupant had disappeared. Not much was said about her. The address was 25 Cromwell Street. It was a tall, narrow house in the middle of town, a short walk from Gloucester Park and the shops. The first thing you notice is the seagulls perched on the rooftops, they squabble and squawk all day, having flown up the River Severn to the nearby docks.
4: The house was, what I would say, pretty much terraced, three-storey high building. There was an entrance for the lodges to go up, the one side, and then there was some wrought iron gates. And then you would knock, uh, if you like, the landlord and his family lived in that part.
2: The landlord was Fred West. There was his wife, Rose, and their growing family. At that time, Anna-Marie was the eldest, then Heather, May, Steve and baby Tara, and Rose was pregnant again.
4: So we didn't necessarily go down into that area. It wasn't necessary unless you were knocking the door to sort of say, can I go through to use the laundry room, which used to happen perhaps about once a week.
2: What was daily life like inside Cromwell Street? Jill experienced it, and this is the first time she's told her story outside of court.
4: Being 17, young, yeah. rebellion, out to, you know, change the world. Uh, we were into uh, punk music, Sex Pistols, Damn 999, Sham 69, dress the part, dance the part, and walk train Gloucester.
2: <laughs> so, so, were you playing Sex Pistols records in Cromwell Street on your record Sometimes, place, yeah. on a tape recorder? Sometimes, yeah.
4: Yeah, sometimes we would, but I think uh, me and my friend would sort of find out where the latest live band was playing and try and get ourselves there one way or another, either hitchhiking, jumping trains, just doing what you did at 17. What
2: did Fred think about
4: that? From Fred's point of view, it was fine. From our point of view, it's as much freedom as any teenager could possibly have to be able to have late nights, have your mates round, play your music as loud as possible.
2: Fred was short and powerfully built, with bushy brown hair blue eyes and gappy teeth. At the time, he was working in a Gloucester factory, making railway carriages. But he also made money doing odd jobs as a local handyman. He had a van full of tools which he parked outside the house and he helped Jill move her stuff in. As landlords went, Fred didn't seem too bad.
4: You could see he was like a hard worker and a ground worker. He had that sort of rough rough and ready look about him. If you were a bit skint, he'd let you off your rent till next week. Oh, go on, he'd say. I used to say things like, Fred, if anyone comes knocking at the door for us, we don't live here. So he would cover us like that. And, you know, being teenagers, sometimes you do get into fixes. We never questioned why he was to and from the van or up and down in the cellar. And one, what you call, you know, one of those passing jokes he was moving something out the van carpet rolled up on his uh, on his shoulder coming out of the van going down to the cellar and it's oh bloody hell it's one of you ain't got dead bodies in there aren't you it was a joke yeah he was just laughing and joking like I said a bit tipsy had a rolled up carpet as long as he is you know must have been a huge carpet Mm-hmm. And he was taking this down, assuming in the cellar. You know, I wasn't really watching. Like I said, he'd have a laugh. He'd let you off your rent, and sort with the roommate, put a new bed in there. Oh yeah, cheers me, buddy. Five for a week. We're laughing. I didn't know the other side of Fred.
2: While Jill didn't know Fred's other side, Rose's behaviour struck her as odd.
4: I remember going down, do some washing, had my little basket under my arm and gave her a knock. And I remember she came into the door in what I could describe as what you call baby doll pyjamas, modern lingerie, kind of thing you'd only wear in a bedroom. You don't open your front door to somebody wearing that. And straight away, without drawing my eyes to it. She never had underwear on. I was a little uncomfortable with that. Um, I didn't flash my body anywhere. And nor did my friends. So that was a bit, ooh, okay. So we'd go and do our little bit of washing. There was a twin tub, a tumble dryer, an ironing board. So it was all there. So you could spend an hour or two doing your washing and getting it all. Sometimes she'd come in and talk to you and sit there on the washing machine or with a leg cocked up on the side with no knickers on, and he just pretended you didn't notice. When you finish, you go upstairs and see to him, oh, my God, it was all on display again. Vile, vile, vile. You could guarantee 11 o'clock in the evening the the doorbell would ring. Well, we weren't expecting visitors, so it was quite a lark. Just to go in the hallway and have a peer over, see who was coming in. Fred was always in the hallway so we'd probably open the door and you would see characters um, coming in and then going off to our right hand side into what we know which had it on the door Rose's room well we'd rush back into our rooms make sure they never saw us give it about half an hour or so and then we'd have a appear out, see what was going on. And you did hear people, which I can only... Um, you mean
2: men? Yeah. yeah.
4: Um You could hear people having sex. With Rose? I assume so. Yeah. Sometimes there was two guys. Screams, little yells, a bit of a banging about. You could not imagine of what was... what we know to have happened now. No. You could never have put that in your imagination of that, what was going on. Yes, uh, it didn't take us long to realise she was um, perhaps on the game. It was just, oh, she's on the game. Yeah, 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 doing what they do. With Um, with Fred's knowledge. Yeah, I just thought live and let live. Mm. At the time, you just thought it was they have a very open marriage Mm. and they obviously like to entertain more than one person in the bedroom at a time.
2: Jill was an unwitting lodger in the House of Horrors. She was in a very dangerous place. But the way she describes it, the sound of Rose and her clients having sex, it was more of a laugh. Jill would turn up her radio to drown out the noise. She only felt physically threatened once. It was during a visit from Fred's brother, John.
4: John was a regular visit, a visitor. I believe he was worked for the council or men or something. Big built, very much like Brian Blessed, very loud. Great big fat belly. <laughs> Probably in his 40s, I don't know. He'd have a laugh and a joke and look all cool and confident amongst them. So you'd go down and pay your rent. And there was me, pretty cocksure and myself, having a bit of banter with these two old men. He sort of pressed himself against me. And uh, my back was by the fireplace wall, and um, put his arms on the wall while I was sort of squashed in the middle, pressing himself against me. And he said, Oh, what are we going to do with this and then, Fred? I did laugh it off. I did get out of that situation. But I can tell you, when I went upstairs to my room, I was shaking. And I thought, oh, my God, that's really overstepped the mark. I feel quite sick. I feel quite intimidated. You discussed it with your mates, and um, you have to put those feelings aside. It didn't scare me out of Cromwell Street. It did, thinking I'm not going to put myself in a place where John is on his own, and perhaps I will avoid going downstairs when he's visiting, because... For that few seconds, I was totally fixed to that wall.
2: We'll hear more from Jill Britt's experiences as a lodger later in this series. Before that, the story of Heather West and how the secrets of Cromwell Street were discovered.
0: See you to find out if it's right for you.
2: Part 2. The Missing Daughter.
1: I was at school with Heather West, Hockcote Secondary School. I would have been 13 and she would have been 12. This
2: is mary Mott. She was friends with Heather West, Fred's and Rose's first child together.
1: Heather was a sweetheart. She had... Shoulder-length, dark, straight hair, brown eyes. Her teeth weren't in the best order. Really thin, extremely thin. To the point where you think, you know, have some of my lunch as well. She wasn't a troublemaker. She kept herself to herself without a doubt. Her chin would be touching her her chest the whole time. Even around us, she would... Keep her head down. But you don't know that as a kid, do you? You just think she's weird.
2: Friends say she was clever. They would copy her homework.
1: She liked drawing. She loved her art, pottery. There was these little dolls, which was the the fad, and it was... I forget what they're called. Not playing dolls with their arms moved, but like little animals, dolls, Lithuanian things or something Sylvanian like that. Fun. That's it. Sylvanian fun. That's the one. Heather and I would go round and play with them. And one time, Heather pinched one. It, it caused such a big stink. So for Christmas, we bought her some. But I, I believe her mum said she couldn't have them and threw yeah. them away. Rose. Yeah. Well, that's what she said. She said, "Mum said I couldn't have them." And threw them away. Mm. But there's this little things you just think, "Oh, well, never mind."
2: in 1995 I spoke to someone else who knew Heather West
3: right.
2: Hello. Hello. Um, Chris Davis was another lodger at Cromwell Street. He was dating one of the West children, Anna Marie One day Heather told him something strange
3: it sounds like a stupid question.
2: The quality of this tape isn't great but I'll paraphrase where it gets hard to hear
3: I'm going to run away Okay, fair enough. Where are you
2: going? She said she was going to run away. Well, I
3: don't know. I think I might go down the forest and live.
2: Her plan was to live in the nearby forest of Dean. Yeah. Bed and breakfast. Youth hostel. No, just live. So you're going to go and find a cave and live in that sort of thing?
3: Yeah.
2: He gave her some survival tips. I told her how to survive,
3: off the land, what to look for. Um, If you're not sure about a mushroom or a berry, eat one and don't eat anything else for about half an hour because if it's poisonous, your body will regurgitate it in 20 minutes.
2: He told her how to hunt rabbits Uh, and catch uh, fish. Bloody
3: rabbit, Uh, best way to cook bloody fish, you know, things like that.
2: But he didn't ask her why she wanted to run away from home. Perhaps Chris should have understood that this was more than a child's daydream. Just
3: just waffled on about this the Heather. She was asking for information. I was giving it. She was taking it in.
2: And I thought, I left it. Heather never brought it up again. What made Heather consider such a drastic plan? I spoke to her brother Steve West, three years her junior.
3: And, uh, I,
2: I wanted to find out more about life for the children inside 25 Cromwell Street. In particular, I wanted to know more about their dad, Fred West. Steve told me Fred didn't drink or use drugs.
3: He wasn't weird about anything like religion or any silly software or, or Satanism, you know, that's all no, rubbish. He just, just like, worked really hard.
2: Yeah. He wasn't into any religious cults or anything strange like that, which might have explained his lifestyle, but there was one thing. Everyone liked
3: him. Mm-hmm. Sex mad. Yeah. So, so, yeah. Mm-hmm. That was very
2: strange. Steve said his father was sex mad.
3: I about the only thing you could get something weird about it, and, and the way he used to uh, watch men was at the globe.
2: Fred liked to watch Rose with other men.
3: And you all knew that? Yeah. We, could never, we never spoke about it. But you knew from what age, did you, you know? know? From when you were a little boy? Um, I was aware when I was about seven, that she was sleeping with her
2: Steve worked out when he was seven that his mum was sleeping with other men. And, um, and I went upstairs one day, when I
3: was about eight, and um, I found a, a book, like, um, a photo album. And I had pictures of mum with other blokes And I had a pornograph of And I knew then for certain that she was.
2: When Steve was eight, he came across an album of pornographic photographs featuring his mother. Besides the photo albums, pornographic magazines were left lying around the house. Rose placed contact ads in them, selling herself under her working name, which was Mandy. She even had her own doorbell for clients. Fred watched through peepholes and sometimes he filmed her. Rose kept her soiled underwear in a jar as mementos. One day, though, some of her pornographic magazines went missing. Steve told me the story. He said he was summoned to the school office. His mum had called. She wanted him home quick. A warning, some of the things you're about to hear are upsetting. There
3: was one day I was at school, and um, she, uh, she called me home from school. And they, they came in to that, said, so if your mum's called, you've to go home. I ran all the way home because I think there was, you know, somewhere else. And I was only mum in the house. And she told me to go in the bathroom and strip off. I really it,
2: you know. Steve said he ran all the way home. When he got there, his mum was alone in the house. She told him to go into the bathroom and strip. And I looked around on the towel rack and
3: there was a belt and a two piece of the wire.
2: There was a leather belt and some wire on the towel rail. And she
3: tried the one around my hand. Um, and tried tied the other one to her and told me to lie on the floor. And I, she tied it to the toilet, and she just belted and caned me for about.
2: For how? She tied him to the toilet, and then she belted and caned him for a quarter of an hour.
3: I don't know about twelve, but she just kept telling, asking, "What have you done? What have you done?" I, I didn't know what I'd done.
2: She kept asking, "What have you done?" Steve was confused. He didn't know what she was talking about.
3: Right then she said "You took some pornographic um, magazines the next and I said, "I haven't at all." So she beat me and then I was ten to the
2: Rose had noticed that her magazines were missing.
3: And I was like covered in blood. I was fucking in you know, a white state. and she told me to get dressed and go back to school. After uh, about an hour, I right? went back to school, and I come home in the evening, and Heather had been sent home from school for having these magazines.
2: Steve had been telling the truth all along. Later, Heather was sent home for having the magazines in school. And she
3: thought it was me. But when she found out it was Heather, she, all she said to Heather was, thinking, like, was uh, Don't worry about it, seems like you can And I was it. And that was mum all over.
2: Now, Heather was coming up for 17. She had given up on running away to live in the forest, but she was still anxious to get away from home. Her opportunity came in June 1987. She got a job offer from a holiday camp in Devon. Heather was so excited. Then she got another call. The job had fallen through. The next morning, it was raining. Steve and the other children trooped off to school. Heather stayed home. When the children returned, Heather was gone. You came home
3: and said, where's Heather? You came home and said, look, where's Heather? And he said, she left home.
2: Fred told the children that the woman from the holiday camp rang again to say the job was back on.
3: she The woman rang again and said, it back on again.
2: He said she picked Heather up in a mini and took her to work. A
3: girl picked her up in a mini and she's gone to work on a holiday camp.
2: The children never saw Heather again. Steve thought she was working at the holiday camp. Friends were told she had gone away with a boyfriend. Fred told the other kids he'd seen her and actually received phone calls from her. He said she was living abroad. She was doing fine. Seven years passed. On the 26th of February 1994, Heather's remains were excavated from the back garden of 25 Cromwell Street. Fred quickly confessed. He said he'd strangled her, then cut her head off and dismembered her body using a serrated knife used for cutting up frozen meat. He talked about killing his daughter in gruesome detail and with a remarkably casual attitude. This is a recording of Fred when he was in custody.
3: And then I brought the two hands up and grabbed her around the neck.
2: But, I mean,
3: I didn't, I, mean I, didn't grab, I didn't grab her around the neck to, to choke her or do nothing. All I was going to do was grab her around the neck and shake her.
2: When Detective escorted Fred back to Cromwell Street, he calmly showed them where they would find her body under the red and yellow patio stones. What the police didn't realise was that it was just the beginning. Heather wasn't the West's only victim. 25 Cromwell Street was full of human remains. Next time Fred West's past, I revisit my tapes to see what his childhood tells us about the man he became. Unheard, the Fred and Rose West Tapes, was written and presented by Howard Soons. The producer was Paul Smith. The executive producer was Russell Finch. The mix engineer was Josh Gibbs. The title music was composed by Shani Aviram, with additional production from Steve Ackerman, Antonia Udenlami, Ben Maidley, and Alice Lutchins. Unheard, the Fred and Rose West Tapes, is a Something Else production. Also from something else.
0: How did we get here? With Claudia Winkleman and Professor Tanya Byron. In these in-depth one-on-one therapy sessions, we dig deep into personal stories with fascinating and emotional revelations. A passionate, insightful and moving experience with clear outcomes to each episode. He is
1: as anxious about attachment with you as you are with him.
3: Oh, wow. That's crazy, isn't it? Oh, that's a weird feeling. Wait, so... Oh, God. Don't you just feel like, whoa, why didn't I know that all along?
2: Listen now in Apple Podcasts, Spotify and all good podcast apps.